Welcome to Dynasty for the Common Man, where an average Joe Dynasty player just wants to talk with other average Joe Dynasty players. My name is Nathaniel Broughton. You can find me on Twitter at Nathaniel Bro. Follow me for interaction. I don't push out any hot takes or statistics or anything like that. What I like to do is talk draft strategies and Twitter polls and talk trade ideas. So find me on Twitter and let's connect. Let's get to this week's show. Welcome back to Dynasty for the Common Man. This week, I'm riding solo. And I had mentioned a couple of episodes ago, or maybe just on several different episodes, that I'm kind of a a narratives guy. I'm I'm not, I don't track statistics, I don't scout, um, but I'm kind of aware of player values based on narratives. And so tonight I wanted to kind of unpack some of those narratives. And I think this might be a two-parter. Tonight I'm going to talk about narratives I don't buy into. uh, And then maybe next week we'll look at some of the narratives I am prone to believing. But um, so, yeah, it's just going to be me kind of rambling (laughs) a little bit. But the first narrative that uh, drives me crazy is the label injury prone. Um, When talking with uh, other you know, dynasty owners about maybe doing a trade and they say someone's injury prone. Um, for me specifically, this uh, first started to impact me when I was owning Keenan Allen a couple of years ago. And uh, I think he had maybe a, a clavicle that he broke uh, one year and then he had a ruptured spleen or something or a lacerated spleen like the following year. And people when I would talk, like bring him up in trades, would say, oh, he's injury prone. Uh, so to me, injury prone means uh, that there is, there's a fragility to the person um, that will always be there. I think that's, I think that's what people mean, um, but it's hard to read. You know, it's such a vague, uh, big, big label, but uh, that seems what people are like, oh, you can't trust him. He's injury prone. Uh, meaning every year he's likely to get injured. But you're not likely to lacerate your spleen more than once, and a clavicle injury isn't a reoccurring thing. Now, when someone te- tears the ACL, uh, it's likely that um, they're going to have knee problems in the future. But I even think it's more likely that the year after they come back from the ACL, they have either... Um, an injury that is related to the rehabilitation process that um, a a muscle tissue or or whatever that they needed to rely upon while protecting the ACL knee, you know, got stressed out. Uh, And so that that new uh, stress on a different part of their body is prone to injury. Um, Not that they're going to tear the exact same ACL um, or maybe that they, they rushed back too quickly uh, and the strain they put on themselves in the rush back might cause, uh, cause their body not to be um, fully you know, restored. Uh, but that's, that is an injury prone I'm likely to consider, but I don't think it's a long-term thing. So Dalvin Cook is a great example of this. He is rookie year. Uh, he has a major injury, comes back the next year. I think he played one or two games. Uh, and was out again for the rest of the season. So Darius Geis is sitting in the same boat. Um, 
this year, having already injured, re-injured himself after his major injury his rookie year. And for that reason, I'm thinking about he, him being a bye, and I'm not so worried about him, but I'm not applying the injury-prone label to him because I think the second injury is caused by the first injury. Um, it's, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make him injury-prone, but the process of recovery from the first injury actually could be the cause for the second injury. Um, now, there are things like Fournette, uh, who in, kind of seems to re-injure his ankle over and over, although this year he had a really healthy year. Um, that might be a person I am a little more uh, nervous about if there's, a, if there's an ongoing uh, yeah, foot or ankle problem. Um, those seem to, to reoccur. Um, but, but those usually aren't season-long injuries. You know, you might sit out two games and come back. Um, or, yeah, you might have, like, a, a stress fracture and be out six weeks. But you're not, you're not out for the season. Um, so that even though there's a risk, but it's not, it's not a huge, huge risk. Um, and so when you, when you consider the injury history of a player, you kind of want to consider like, is this been a major injury that the rehab might cause for them to re-injure themselves again? In which case, if you own the player, you got to maybe expect that and not buy low or not sell low. However, if you don't owe that player, when that second injury happens, that the owner who owns him is so disheartened that it's a great <laughs> buy low. So I got guys pretty much on all my teams this year because I kind of expected the second injury. Um, I actually sold Dalvin Cook after his second injury, thinking to myself, if he gets inj- injured again, people will forever call him injury prone. And so I sold him at a decent price, not as much as I would have liked given what he produced this last year. Um, but the risk in my mind was, if he gets in- injured again, I'll never be able to move him for anything because people will just throw the injury-prone label on him. And uh, whether it's warranted or not at that point um, is you know, for each owner to decide. But I just wanted to kind of avoid the risk of that label because it seems to stick for a long time uh there's like two years after keenan allen's major injuries that people were still saying he's you know a risk for of injury it's like no he's not those aren't anyways you get my point injury prone is a narrative that i uh i look to exploit uh i try to not let it uh affect me um another is uh, where they talk about age cliffs. So there's uh, running back cliffs and age cliffs and wide receiver age cliffs. Um, depending on who you're listening to, the, the people would say like you should sell running backs after their rookie contract. Uh, and you should sell wide receivers after their age, you know, 27 or age 28 season. Um, for me, I actually... I don't agree about it them being an age. I really b- believe it's more workload. So this it, this means you know. So for instance, Mark Ingram uh, is still in the league. Uh, he's been old for three years, but even when he was young, he wasn't uh, the workhorse. He didn't get Demarco Murray level 
work. Uh, because of that, he was always splitting the backfield, which, you know, is not great for for being an owner. But it does mean later on when he lands at an awesome spot like New Orleans, <coughs> excuse me, or later Baltimore, I'm fully on the Mark Ingram train because I don't label him as old because his workload has been a, not a workhorse workload. He would have been old if he had had a workhorse workload. Uh, and I would have worried about him falling off of a production cliff. Um, but even now, uh, I just still really don't worry about it. I'm, you know, I'm a big J uh, J.K. Dobbins guy, um, so uh, I'm I am worried about his competition. Um, but I don't think it's because uh, Mark Ingram is, you know, just going to start to be a plotter, um, like like a Frank Gore has become a plotter. Uh, so that's my take on, on running backs. It's more about their workload uh, more than their age. Um, and also their ability to uh, catch catch passes. That can keep them producing much longer. Um, so, okay, but wide receivers uh, that, that people say, like, you should, you know, be selling them after their age 27 uh, season, I just think that, is yeah i think that's just wrong um there was a couple of guys that stick out to me um it's you know this is cherry picking but if you're bothered by that get your own podcast uh manuel sanders uh switched teams and from you know from denver to san francisco and usually people think like that's a tough transition hard to make an impact and he did He's old, and he makes makes an impact. And so going to New Orleans this year, again, I think he's going to be an impact uh, for the team. And if not, you know, a good flex or wide receiver three for, for your dynasty team. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald uh, has, if you bet against Larry Fitzgerald for the last five years, you lost, except maybe this year. <laughs> so... Four out of the five years you lost when you bet against Larry Fitzgerald as far as production and where you could have got him in drafts and where his trade value was. If you traded him four years ago, you've uh, you've you've lost on that production four years in a row. Um, Julio Jones is what is currently going through that same uh, market skepticism. You can't uh, you can't trade for him what his value is in average draft position. People will draft him earlier than people will um, value him in trades. And uh, I just think that that's a mistake. Um, uh, so those, those are like, obviously, Larry, Larry Fitzgerald and Julio Jones. Are like Those are, you know, Hall of Fame wide receivers, right? Amanda Sanders is not on their level, but he's still, he still fits uh, my narrative, <laughs> at least. Um, but here's a guy that uh, I want to bring up, Jordy Nelson. Okay, let me quick get his stats up. So Jordy Nelson was great uh, for several years, over you know, uh, 1,100 yards. Let's see, one, two, three, four, uh, four out of five years during his prime. He turned 30 in 2015. That year he didn't play at all due to injury. Uh, the his year 29, uh, when he was 29 years old, he had. 1,500 yards uh, and 13 touchdowns. His 28, when he was 28, 
He had 1,300 yards and eight touchdowns. <clears throat> then he turns 30, gets injured. So you think, oh, like, I'd maybe have lost the, uh, if I had sold him on when he was 27, after his 27 season. I'd maybe lost the value I could have gotten for his 28 year and his 29 year. But I was right on age 30. But age 31, he comes back, catches 97 balls, over 1,200 yards, and 14 touchdowns. His best season, uh, touchdown-wise, and his third best season, uh, yardage-wise, and second best season, reception-wise. And so if you believe that you should sell wide receivers uh, that are productive and high-productive, like Hopkins, OBJ, Mike Evans, Amari Cooper, uh, these types of guys... uh, that you should sell them now, you're betting every year on against what I think is a losing bet. Um, and the other thing is that when you talk about selling these players, uh, like like Hopkins, for example, he's he's going in the first round of, of startup drafts. But when you talk about moving him, people will bring up his age as if you should uh you should get you should accept the discount uh that I, i'm not going to give you full price on deandre hopkins as the buyer of deandre hopkins because he's nearing the age cliff and it's just no that's silly um he's <laughs> it's a losing bet i think for several years in a row before you're right whereas what you'd be getting back probably are picks and young players that maybe have a year of production with uh, hype around them or two years of production with hype around them. But if there are three years of production uh, and you're trying to sell get on uh, Hopkins for them, the, the person owning those players is like, no, I, I would rather have my guy because he's younger and he's already proven it uh, rather than, um, so you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to do those types of moves very easily. Um, you're not going to get fair value, and you're better off just betting on DeAndre Hopkins that for the next three or four years, you're going to win the bet uh, of his production. Uh, so uh, I, I would, I would, I'm fine selling running backs early <clears throat> because I think the likelihood of, of losing three, <laughs> two or three years in a row and on that bet. Uh, aren't high you might lose one or two years um, but for wide receivers selling them early I feel like you could lose the bet three or four years in a row um, and with running backs again it's it's more about the workload uh, that's I feel like a little bit more easy to, to observe um, so that's kind of how I view age uh, and when it comes to the wide receiver and, and running back narratives <laughs> Another narrative is coaches, specifically uh, new and, and flashy coaches that come from coaching trees. Uh, so a couple of years ago, Matt Nagy was under Andy Reid. Kareem Hunt was unbelievable. Um, I can't even remember if Nagy was there Mahomes' first year under center or not. Um, 
but anyways, he goes to the Bears, and as a Bear fan, uh, all the news is like he's an offensive genius, uh, and he does pretty well his first year. Um, and then this year, it just seemed like lost. Absolutely lost. Um, and even now, people are like, some are still saying, well, he's going to turn it around. He was just outthinking himself. He's still getting his feet under him. Um, I, I'm not so sure. I think he just might not be that good. And that Andy Reid was the good coach. Um, another one, Bill Belichick. Uh, when you look at his coaching tree, uh, there are a handful of successes, but they're not like big successes. And the, the ones that uh, I also found, you know, again, I like to cherry pick because it's my narrative. Romeo Cornell for the Browns, um, Charlie Weiss at Notre Dame, Eric Mangini for the Jets. Uh, right now, Bill O'Brien is coach of the Texans, and the trade he just pulled off seemed, well, at least right now, when he sent Hopkins away, seemed silly. Um, and currently, Mike, Mike Vrabel, Matt Patricia, uh, the jury is still out on both of those guys. Vrabel has looked decent, but Matt Patricia has also at times looked quite lost. Uh, the locker room doesn't seem uh, for rumblings of yeah players not trusting him, uh, and then so this this has this uh, the narrative might continue with Brian Flores, who's the new coach for the Dolphins. He was under Bill Belichick for a time. Joe Judge, the new coach for the Giants, under Bill Belichick for the t- for a time, and people might be prone to think, oh, like he's they know the Patriot way. Um, I, I feel like it's not exactly the Patriot way. It's just the Bill Belichick way. Like he's just smarter than everybody uh he's the good coach he is the you know factor that that sticks around obviously with tom brady um that helps too (laughs) um but so so when you hear these these things that started coming out with sean mcday uh that like the assistant quarterback coach gets a new offensive coordinator job uh and he's from the mcveigh coaching tree or his offensive coordinator uh, gets moved for for a new head coaching job. Like everyone just assumed, like they're gonna do what Sean McVay did his first and second years as a head coach. That they were just gonna come down, come and transform those teams too. And I'm I was just never a believer in that narrative because more times than not, um, I think it's just guys taking uh, riding the coattails of a really good head coach, making their money, striking when the iron is hot. Uh, not necessarily a proven coach themselves. Um, so that's kind of how I, when news breaks of new coaches and new offensive coordinators that came from, you know, so-and-so's uh, coaching tutelage, I don't really buy into that. Another thing I don't buy into is uh, tight end hype in rookie drafts specifically. Um, and even more particularly, like when they talk about athletic pass-catching pass tight ends who have really great measurables, and they run great 40s, and they're really tall, and they're very heavy, and their wingspans are big, and et cetera, et cetera. Ladarius Green, when I first started playing Dynasty, was uh, a guy I was trying to buy everywhere. Uh, almost, almost all the time I got denied, um, which I was glad for because he turned into a big nothing. Um, he went over to... The Steelers at one point, I think he came from Oakland, went to the Steelers, and people were like, oh, Ben Bet, like, it was the quarterback, and the, but, but Roethlisberger's going to know how to use him, and he never was a thing with Ben Roethlisberger. Then in 2017, there was three really big uh, 
tight end prospects. Uh, O.J. Howard, David Njoku, and Evan Ingram. Uh, and most of those guys, if, if not one of them went in the first round, several of them may have gone in the first round of rookie drafts. But you know uh, who is the best uh, tight end to come out of the 2017 class? It was George Kittle. George Kittle was drafted in the fifth round by San Francisco. They did not know that he was going to be who he is. Or they would have taken him in the fourth, or they would have taken him in the third, or they would have taken him in the second. He wasn't drafted in my four-round rookie draft. No one knew who George Kittle was. Uh, apparently, his measurables in college production wasn't waving bright, shiny numbers at people. And so, when Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson and Irv Smith Jr. were also getting quite a bit of attention... Uh, and that they were athletic and speed freaks and had good hands and they were big bodied, knew how to, they always got a box out, the safety, things like that. Like, it's not actually a rebound, you know? It's not actually a jump ball. The ball is coming at a trajectory unlike any of those other things. Uh, they, they're turning their shoulders, their hips, their head all at the same time. It's, it's, it's not the same as a rebound in basketball, the way people talk about tight ends. Um, and so I, I think it's more of a crapshoot than we, at, at any other level of the running back or wide receivers, I feel like the tight end is, is the hardest one to pin, pin down. Um, Hawkinson flashed game one this year. And didn't really do much after that. Uh, Noah Fant came on late, and people are just assuming that that's because he's uh, a great talent, and Drew Locke loves him, and the offense is going to scheme around him. Uh, and though I like that he came on late, his the projections of his of his ceiling now are beyond where I'm willing to pay, uh, because I still think it's it's a risk. Um, it's still he's still an unknown to to us. This year's rookies, like, there's hardly any tight ends that anyone's talking about, which might very well be that there's a George Kittle in this draft class then because it's exactly what his uh, profile was, buried, uh, not shiny, and became a dominant tight end. Um, I just think it's so hard to predict. Uh, Another kind of body type narrative is the big-bodied go-up-and-get-it guys, and they talk about wide receivers. The big-bodied, they know how to really... Uh, climb the ladder. <laughs> Use all these things like that. Uh, like Mike Williams coming out of college, uh, rookie drafts, he was e- either 105 or 106. And people loved him. Um, I feel like that was the same way with Josh Doxson. Um, when Kelvin Benjamin and, and Devin Funches were on the Panthers, um, we, they, you know, they didn't look like good wide receivers, uh, but they were big bodied red zone threats who, you know, um, we're just going to dominate physically. Um, so currently there's uh, someone doing that, and DK Metcalf, he really did that, it looked like, in the playoffs. Um, but if all he stays is a big-bodied go-up-and-get-it guy, uh, he's not going to last very long in the league because there are really strong cornerbacks who know how to push them to the sideline, take them out of the play. Uh, if he grows into... Uh, someone who can can run routes, then he can really become a dominant player, a la Calvin Johnson and, and Julio Jones, who are 
big bodied guys, but they're not necessarily go up and get it guys. Julio Jones goes across the middle a lot. That's what Calvin Johnson did all the time. They weren't just running streaks down the sideline and jumping over guys. They did that in the end zone on fade routes and whatnot, but to make themselves a great talent, they played all over the field. They ran routes all over the field. Um, so when it's just a narrative of a big body to go up and get a guy, um, all that means to me when I hear that is, oh, he probably wasn't open very much, and they were just throwing it in his vicinity. Uh, and when he was playing in college against guys when he was 6'4", and they were 5'11", yeah, they probably won a lot because of that. But they also probably weren't open because they don't know how to get themselves open. So that's a narrative I don't like. A similar narrative is the speed freak. Uh, the guys that just blow people away at the combine and they run four three three forties, um, like John Ross did a couple years ago. I think he broke the forty time record. Maybe um, Hollywood Brown did the has wowed people this year. It's Henry Ruggs. Uh, and when I've heard analysts say, you know. If they have a Deshaun Jackson career, like, that's great. I want that type of player on my team. Well, I've had Deshaun Jackson on my team before, and he is so frustrating because um, you just don't know when he's going to have that game. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not 80% of the time. It's not really, from my recollection, 50% of the time when he becomes like really – high asset for a starting lineup. And so um, when guys that are are just about speed, um, I'm not that interested in them either. I think for the NFL, that's good. That's good for uh, an offensive coordinator. It's good for the quarterback. It's good for the other wide receivers on the team and the tight end. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's good as a fantasy uh, asset. So speed freaks, I'm not that interested in them either. Two more. I want to talk about rookie running backs as a narrative to draft rookie running backs over rookie wide receivers. If they're in the similar kind of tier of talent and they get the same amount of kind of similar draft capital, similar situation uh, or for opportunity uh, that you should go running back over wide receiver because it's just easier. The adjustment is faster and, um, even if you don't believe in them long-term, their value is going to go up and you can sell them quick. And uh, so I, <clears throat> I've kind of believed this, uh, but I started looking back at the last four years of our rookie drafts. In 2016, um, Derrick Henry, uh, Kenneth Dixon, and Kenyon Drake all went in our first round. Uh, none, of them, uh, none of them had their stock increase after their first year. Uh, Kenneth Dixon never became a thing. Kenyon Drake didn't become a thing until second half of this season. Uh, and Derrick Henry actually was fairly frustrating until uh, like the last five games of 2018 when he had just like <laughs> massive performance. And then he really became a focal point of the offense last year. Um, but that was 2019. So he didn't produce right away. Uh, and his stock didn't go up right away. And then in 2017, uh, there was Leonard Fournette, Joe Mixon, Dalvin Cook, and Christian McCaffrey. 
Uh, Leonard Fennett, uh was uh, one, either one or two compared if you went Corey Davis, which I did uh, when I had one or two, and that was a big bummer. Um, Fournette produced, but he often was injured. Joe Mixon just didn't seem to like have any wow factor because of the offensive offense he was stuck in. And Dalvin Cook, for the first two seasons, was injured all the time. Now you could say, well, shouldn't you take out the guys that are injured? No, because it's also a position that we know is more prone to major injury um, and than the wide receiver position because of the stress of the body type and what they're doing on to their legs and the, the sharpness of the hits. So uh, those three guys did not produce in a way that really made their stock rise. Maybe Fournette rose a little bit, but Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon certainly did not match the hype that people were expecting uh, their rookie year. Then 2018 became this loaded rookie running back class. You had Saquon Barkley, and then the people would say, and 1B is Darius Geis. Then you had Nick Chubb, Rashad Penny, Ronald Jones, Sony Michelle, and Royce Freeman. Well, we know what happened with Geis. Again, uh, injury is part of the risk of just the position itself, and it showed up right away for him. Rashad Penny gets replaced by Chris Carson, who I love, by the way. Such an awesome beast of a man. Um, but people thought, oh, it's for sure he's going to take over that position. And then even after his rookie year, going into his second year, people still were like, oh, well, at least this year it's going to happen. And it didn't happen again. Ronald Jones... Uh, has never really materialized in any substantial, like, you're happy about the pick that you made way, at least. Sony Michelle was taken the first round of the NFL draft, certainly the first round, and maybe in the top three or four, uh, depending on if you pick Chubb over him, in your rookie draft. And he certainly is not produced in a way that you're happy about the pick. Royce Freeman went near the back half of that draft. Um, and again, an undrafted free agent in, in Lindsay, Philip Lindsay kind of stole the show he's produced a little bit but not again in a way that you were satisfied with what you got out of the pick um, 2019 David Montgomery was a top three or four uh, pick in, in the 2019 rookie class his stock has definitely not gone up maybe it is stable but I, I bet his ADP has dropped significantly uh, from where it was when he was coming in as a rookie Darrell Henderson, who I really was excited about, and then he went to the Rams. Uh, you know, just didn't get any respect from at least the coaching staff and touches-wise. Maybe he bounces back, and maybe David Montgomery does too. The point I'm trying to make is that drafting rookie running backs because they are for sure more able to perform quicker is not necessarily true. Um, people were... Calvin Ridley and was was a guy drafted later in the first round of the same class as Sony Michelle and Royce Freeman and Ronald Jones. I would so much have rather take in <laughs> Calvin Ridley than I took of Geis. I'm still a believer in Geis, but Calvin Ridley is a great asset to own. There was another wide receiver in that class that has also came on, but um, I can't remember it now. Uh, DJ Moore is another one that. You could have gotten a 106 or later uh, because you pr would have probably prioritized the running backs and you wish you hadn't now. Uh, 
because those running backs never really got off the ground, and he uh, and he's become a very very valuable asset uh, in dynasty circles. People are very excited about him. So that narrative, even though I uh, am prone to believe it, is still just a narrative, and it's not really backed up great. And the last one is second-year quarterback progress. People just expect that your second year is going to be better. That's why Baker Mayfield, who looked great second half of his rookie year, maybe he came in even a little earlier than just the second half of the season. But people saw enough to say, oh, he's going to be great. It didn't help that OBJ landed on his team, and people just went nuts in ADP. He shot way up positional rankings. He was near the in the top five at the time of quarterbacks, which in one QB leagues, you know, you could have gotten wrong and it doesn't destroy you. But in Superflex, you would have paid Norman a leg to get him and you'd be really, really unhappy. Um, another one uh, is Teddy Bridgewater. So uh, before his injury, let me just pull it up here. Teddy Bridgewater, uh, his rookie year, he played 13 games. He had a completion percentage of uh, 64%. Uh, he threw for 2,900 yards and 14 touchdowns. Uh, he had 12 picks in those 13 games. Uh, in, in his second year, playing a full season, 16 games, uh, he went up a percentage point in his completions through, for three more games. He only threw 300 yards more than he did through 13 games. Uh, his yards per game, his rookie year was 224. His yards per game, his sophomore year was 200. He threw the exact same amount of touchdowns in 16 games as he did his rookie year in 13 games. He threw nine interceptions. He didn't really clean up the picks either. Uh, the TDs didn't go up and the INTs didn't drop a significant amount. His yardage, like I said, was only 300 more yards in those 16 games. And so people saw a great rookie season from Teddy Bridgewater and thought, he's going to get better. That's what happens. You're your sophomore quarterback. Of course, you're going to get better. Uh, and as I continue to cherry pick, I'm not going to consider Mitch Trubisky's actual rookie season because it was a joke uh, of coaching uh, with John Fox. So we'll look at him in 2018. 2018, he threw 289 balls, or he completed 289 balls uh, out of 434 for a completion of 66%. It's actually a really good completion percentage. That made 3,200 yards uh, for 230 yards a game through 24 touchdowns and 12 picks. So he needed to clean up his picks. But other than that, that's a really good kind of off-the-ground uh you know, quarterback season for a guy who's pretty much a rookie. Um, and uh, his rushing numbers were pretty good too. He had uh, 400 yards rushing, but uh, we're just going to stick with his passing for now. Next year, this year, if you're anything <laughs> familiar with how his season went, um, he threw the ball uh, 516 times. So just like 80 balls more than the previous year. His completion percentage went from 66 to 63. His yards went from 
3,200 to 3,100. And his touchdowns went from 24 uh, and 12 interceptions to 17 touchdowns and 10 interceptions. It was just, it was a really, really bad second year as a quarterback. Now, again, this has uh, implications. We are expecting Daniel Jones to do better. We are expecting Drew Locke to do better. We are expecting, uh, what's the guy from uh, Arizona? Kyle Murray to do better. And it's very possible that all three do. It's also very possible that all three of them are stagnant or regress because it's pretty standard to do that. But the narrative is it's his second year in the offense. It's his second year with the coordinator or head coach, which maybe sometimes is not true because they were highly drafted because the coach, <laughs> coaching staff that drafted them probably wasn't good. So even that causes upheaval. You know what Sam Darnold's kind of going through? Like, ugh, I do believe in the Adam Gase narrative that he ruins everyone on his team. Uh, anyways, it's very possible that all three, Daniel Jones, Kyler Murray, and Drew Locke, don't uh, progress their second year in the offense. Um, but the projection and the narrative that drives their value is second-year quarterbacks are better than their rookie year. And it's just not necessarily true. Um, there's myriads of reasons, um, but it's not necessarily true. And no one read the tea leaves to project Teddy or Mitch Trubisky or Baker doing worse. Uh, they all expected them to do better. No one sees what is actually the thing that will make them either regress or stagnate. Um, we just believe that it won't. So um, that's me kind of getting uh, all rambly-jambly. But... Um, if you disagree, uh, you know, come on the podcast in the future and, and tell me why you disagree on any of these narratives. Uh, like I said, I'm a narratives guy, so I don't do a ton of stats. The quarterback stuff I did do a little looking into. Um, but, but historical stuff like the rookie drafts of past, you know, shows that these narratives exist in spite of actual history. So... Um, rookie fever always takes a hold. Anyways, uh, with that, tomorrow my home league's rookie draft starts, and I don't have any picks. So I will probably overpay to get back into the draft. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nathaniel Bro. And if you've been listening for a few weeks, and you want to join the podcast, uh, I would love to have you. I don't uh, expect expertise. I just expect to have fun. We can do some fun um, mocks or, or trade polls or analyzing things like that. We can do questions. Um, you could submit your questions to me at Nathaniel Bro. I can talk about them with other people. Uh, but I, I just want to keep rolling with uh, talking to Dynasty common men so uh and women if you want to join the program uh shoot me a message um on twitter or if you know me just send me a text so um yeah thanks again for listening and uh see you next week